Well, the passage that we are looking at today comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 7, beginning in verse 40. This is what it says. On hearing his words, Jesus' words, some of the people said, surely this man is a prophet. Others said, he is the Messiah. Still others asked, how can the Messiah come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Some wanted to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? And they replied, Are you from Galilee too? Look into it. You will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. So today we come to the last passage in the Gospel of John in this sermon series that we have been looking through. We've been looking at the life of Jesus in John chapter 6, chapter, or chapter 5, 6, and now chapter 7. And this chapter ends with a significant problem, with a major problem. Really with a problem that has plagued and, and caused people troubles for close to 2,000 years. And, and, and John points out what it is. He says that after the temple guards had gone and listened to Jesus and they came back to the chief priests and they didn't bring Jesus, the chief priests and the Pharisees said, what? Where is he? Why didn't you arrest him? And this is their answer. They said this. No one ever spoke the way this man does. No one is like Jesus. In fact, if you were to, 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 to make a list of the three most influential people in all of human history, or, or the five most influential, or, or the 20 most influential people in all of human history, Jesus would be on that list. Any educated person cannot deny the kind of influence that Jesus has had on human history. But if you looked at Jesus and compared him to all the other names on that list, he would be utterly unique for one particular reason, and that is because he claimed to be God. And, and of course, this is the conflict. The, uh, sorry, and this, of course, is the problem. I mean, what do you do with someone who has such a profound effect upon human history and yet claims to be God? What do you make of Jesus? This is, this is the conflict at the end of this chapter in the Gospel of John. In fact, John summarizes the conflict this way. In verse 43, he says, thus the people were divided because of Jesus. They had different responses, different theories about who Jesus is. In fact, this passage shows some of these different, uh, different uh, thoughts about what he is. One of the thoughts is that he was a great prophet. Verse 40 says this. Some of the people said, surely this man is the prophet. And in fact, many people today have that same view about Jesus, that Jesus is a prophet, a, a great teacher, a, a great man. However, you, if you think about this option carefully, it turns out it's not really an option of all, after all, because of what Jesus says. And what he says is that he is God. You know, over and over again, consistently throughout his ministry, time and time again, Jesus, either subtly or not so subtly, proclaims that he is God. I mean, even in these chapters that we've been looking at for the last couple of months, even in chapter 5, 6, and 7, listen to what Jesus says. 
At one point in John chapter 5, he says this, For just as the Father, as God, raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son, Jesus, he's speaking of himself, gives life to those who he's pleased to give. Jesus says, just as God raises people from the dead, I raise people from the dead. I'm the same. And then he goes on to say this, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Jesus says, you think that at the end time, at the day of judgment, you're going to stand before God and he's going to judge you? No, you're going to stand before me and I'm going to judge you. Why? Because I am worthy of the same honor and the same glory and the same reverence as God himself is. I'm equal with God. I am God. And then, and then Jesus says this, then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And in the same conversation, he says, I came down from heaven. And that's just the start. That's just the tip of the iceberg of what Jesus said in these chapters that we've been looking at over these last couple of months. And by the way, you can be utterly confident that these are the actual words of Jesus. See, sometimes people say, well, yeah, probably Jesus didn't say that. Probably John added it in later as a legend that grew up over time. But probably Jesus didn't say those things. Oh, no. Jesus most definitely said these things. And the reason why we can be confident of that is because the earliest documents that proclaimed that Jesus was God, that he was the Messiah, that he was the Son of God, were some of the letters of the Apostle Paul, which showed up 20 to 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, when it comes to the statements and the life of a famous individual, 20 to 30 years is nothing. I mean, think about Martin Luther King. Uh, Martin Luther King was assassinated in April of 1968, 55 years ago this year. Now, if someone this year, 55 years later, not 20 to 30 years later, if somebody said, actually, <coughs> excuse me, actually, Martin Luther King claimed to be God. Actually, Martin Luther King uh, lived a perfect life. Actually, Martin Luther King uh, did all sorts of healings. You know what? People would say, not a chance. In fact, there'd be all sorts of people who are still around who would say, no, he didn't. I, I lived with Martin Luther King. I walked with him. I, I worked with him. I knew him personally. And none of that stuff is true. And they'd be out all over the place. And they'd put that, that kind of lies to bed in a heartbeat. And so the Gospels that John writes, the other things that are written about Jesus were written while there were still so many eyewitnesses still alive that if it had been false, if Jesus had never made those claims, they would put, those people would have rose up and said, he never said anything like that. It's all a lie. And it would have ended on the spot. But they didn't. So what John writes here in these chapters is just the beginning. I mean, in chapter 8, in the next chapter, and we're not going to look at that uh, coming up, but in chapter 8, Jesus gets into a conflict with the Pharisees. And at the end of that conflict, Jesus says, he's telling them who he is. He says, look, I am. I am is the name of God. I am is the name that God has that means that he is beginningless, that he has always been, that he is the ruler and creator and sustainer of the universe. And Jesus takes that name for himself. Jesus literally says, I am God. Not only that, but as you read through Jesus' life, you find out that he forgives sins all the time. Now think about this for a minute. Let's say that I, 
I give a, a, a bike to one of my kids. I say, here's, here's my gift to you. It's a bike. Go ride your bike. And they ride their bike. And then they lend it to a friend of theirs. And that friend rides it down the mountain and crashes it and, and bends it to pieces so it can't be used. If that friend of my kids came back and said to me, I'm so sorry, I'd be in a place to say, that's okay. I forgive you. Now, how can I do it? It's not my bike. It's my kid's bike. Well, the reason why I can do it is because I bought the bike. I paid for the bike. I gave the bike to, to my son or my daughter who lent it to you. So if it needs to be replaced, it's going to cost me. So yes, I am the natural person for you to come and say sorry to and ask for forgiveness. And so when Jesus begins to forgive people's sins, he's saying the same thing. I created these persons. I gave them life. I'm the one who, who is the sustainer and giver of all of life. So if you harm them, if it costs them, it costs me. So of course you should come and, and seek my forgiveness. And of course, I have the right to forgive. In other words, Jesus, when he forgives people, is claiming to be God. And if you keep reading about Jesus, you find out that he demands allegiance to himself. He says, look, if you want to follow after me, you must put me ahead of everything else in your life. I mean, ahead of your own relationships that are important to you. At one point he says, look, if you don't, if you want to follow me and you don't hate your, your mother and your father, your, your spouse, your, your sisters and your brothers, even your own children, you're not worthy to follow me. Now, he doesn't mean that you actually hate them. What he's saying is you have to put me ahead of them. I have to be more important than they are. In another place, he says, look, anything that comes between you and me, anything that would be more important than me, you have to get rid of. If it's your money, you have to sell it. If it's your possessions, if it's something else, you have to get rid of it. I have to be first and primary in your life. In fact, he goes on to say, look, I have to be even more important than life itself for you. He makes these incredible demands for allegiance. Now, now, it's not like others haven't asked people to sacrifice and to give. In Winston Churchill, for instance, in World War II, he says to the, the people of England, he says, all I have to offer you is blood, sweat, toil, and tears. All I have to offer you is that you need to sacrifice. But he says, sacrifice for England. Sacrifice for freedom, for justice. Not for me. But Jesus says, you must lose yourself for me, because I am the ruler of all, the, of all of creation. All the universe will one day bow down to me because I'm God. And then finally at his trial, before the chief priest on the night before he was crucified, the chief priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Messiah? And he doesn't deny it. In fact, he goes on to say, look, you will see me sitting at the right hand of God coming on the clouds, which was a, a picture of judgment. In other words, he said to the chief priest, one day I will come and I will judge the nations and you will answer to me for your actions. Now, let's think about that for a moment. If I were to come to you this morning and stand up here and say, I have an announcement. Just to want you all know, I am God. And um, I, I am the one who uh, forgives your sins. Uh, and I, I, you, you should give your life to me uh, because, uh, I mean, I should be the primary person in your life that you give your, your allegiance to. And I will raise you up on the last day and I will judge the earth. I mean, if I stood up here and said that, I bet you I'd empty the room in a, a minute and a half. 
Uh, I mean, you wouldn't put up with that for a second. You wouldn't go home and say, oh, oh, honey, John is such a great man. He's such a brilliant teacher. You'd be like, he's a nut job. And not just me. I mean, imagine if, if, if King Charles announced that he was God. Or if Albert Einstein said that he could forgive your sins. Or if Napoleon said that he was going to judge the world at the end of the, 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 the earth, uh, at the end of time. Or if your neighbor, or if some random guy from Prince George showed up, started teaching that he was God. I mean, you wouldn't say, wow, what a great man. Oh, what a brilliant prophet. You'd say, that man is a nut job and a crackpot. You see, you can't say that Jesus is just a great man because a great man would never say something like that. He, nor can you say he was a great prophet. Look, you have to understand what a prophet is all about. A, a prophet, I mean, all of the great religions of the world besides Christianity were founded by a great prophet. It, it's the teachings of Jesus that set, and what Jesus says about himself, that set Christianity apart from every other religion. I mean, Muhammad, Buddha, Confucius, these were, these were great prophets. And they came and they said, look, this is the way to go if you want to know God, follow it. But Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to God except through me. And the, the other great prophets of the other religions say, religions say, there is God. And Jesus says, I am God. And the other great prophets say, this is what you must do so that you can be right with God. And Jesus says, I've done everything necessary so that you could be right with God. You see, the claims of Jesus set him utterly apart from all the other prophets that are out there. The claims of Jesus set the Christian faith utterly apart from every other religion. Every other religion is do this to be right with God. Do it well enough, do it good enough, good luck. Hopefully you work hard enough to make it. But Jesus says, you'll never be good enough. You can't do it on your own. You don't need a prophet. You need a savior. And that's what I am. I'm the savior. I am God who has come to make a way to be right with me, with God. That's who Jesus says he is. So no one in good conscience, no one who is reasonable can simply say, oh, Jesus was just a great man or a great prophet. Jesus doesn't really allow that option to you. But then this is where the problem comes in when it comes to Jesus. I mean, how do you account for a man who claims to be God on the one hand and on the other hand produces a teaching of such overwhelming wisdom, a life of such perfection and beauty and deeds of such awesome power that, that even the temple guards who had seen it all said, no one has ever talked the way this man does. There's no one else like Jesus. What do you do with Jesus? Well, if he's not a... If, he's not, if you can't call him a great man or a great prophet, then what are the other options? Well, there's two other options that kind of go together. They are to say that he is, he's a deceiver, a charlatan, that he intentionally sets out to deceive people, or that he is self-deceived, that he's a lunatic, that he, you know, is, is crazy. And again, the people in Jesus' day were not naive. They considered these options. Earlier in this chapter, in verse 12, uh, John tells us that some of the people said this about Jesus. He deceives the people. 
There were some who said, he is a charlatan. He's a scammer. He's a huckster. And so others said this a little later in verse 20. They said, Jesus, you're demon possessed. In other words, you're crazy. You're self-deluded. And in fact, there are people like that out there. On Netflix right now, there's this series called How to Be a Cult Leader. And it basically examines the tactics and, the, and the, the methods of some of the most famous cult leaders of the past 50 or 60 years. People like Charles Manson, Jim Jones, the, the founders of the Gateway to Heaven cult. And in each and every case, it's fascinating. If you watch it, to see that the, these leaders had incredible charisma. They had these teachings that were sort of revolutionary or different. They demanded incredible allegiance from their followers. They basically demanded that they give all of themselves to the cult leaders. And almost in every case, without fail, what they taught and what they led ended up in incredible cruelty and destruction. In fact, if you want to look at it at a, at a massive scale, you just have to look back to what Hitler did in Germany in the 1930s and 40s. Same thing. Charismatic leader, uh, teachings, new teachings, and a demand of personal allegiance to himself that ended in incredible cruelty and destruction. It's the same pattern over and over and over again with every single charlatan and lunatic that's out there. But nothing of Jesus' life squares with that pattern that we see from those people. I mean, look at, look at his teachings, for example. The guards came back to the chief priest and said, no one's ever spoke the way this man does. No one has, has taught with the kind of authority and insight that Jesus has. G.K. Chesterton, uh, he, he explains it this way. He says, look, imagine that you're walking in your backyard and you find a key lying on the ground and you pick it up and say, oh, I wonder what this is for. And you begin to go and put it into every different lock and it doesn't work and it doesn't work and it doesn't work until all of a sudden you put it in and it works perfectly. Now, you don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to figure out that, that that key was made for that lock by some locksmith who made them both. And he says, this is the case for the teachings of Jesus Christ. The teachings of Jesus Christ were given thousands of years ago in an utterly different cultural context than this one, in a pre-modern world. And yet the teachings of Jesus are, are virtually universal in their application. In almost every, in every century, brilliant men and women have found the teachings of Jesus to be fulfilling and satisfying and answering the questions of life. And throughout history, the teachings of Jesus have inspired compassion and care, hospitals and orphanages and, and, and scientific discoveries and, and art and all kinds of beautiful and good things. And in, and, and throughout history, uh, the, the, the teachings of Jesus have, have fit into all these different cultures. In fact, in virtually every culture around the world, there is this acceptance of Jesus now. In fact, these days there are, uh, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is rapidly growing in all kinds of places where 100 years ago, they hardly knew the name of Jesus. Chesterton, Chesterton's argument is this, that if the teachings of Jesus fit the lock of the human heart so well, that is much more likely that they are the teachings of the locksmith than they are the teachings of the deceiver or a lunatic. And then consider his life. He lived such an attractive and beautiful and perfect life that he drew all kinds of people to him. Tons of people who adored him and followed him and gave their life to him. Now, 
There are lots of people who are, who are famous and, and powerful that draw all kinds of people to follow after them. They have huge fan bases. Some who have millions of people who adore them. But if you read the biographies of the lives of all the other great men and women, it turns out that the people who were closest to them, who worked with them, who lived with them, who were married to them, who, who knew them intimately, they, they admired the great leaders, but they also saw all kinds of things that no one else did. I mean, they saw behind the curtains. They saw the anger and the, and the outbursts and the pride and the insecurities and all of those things. And in every single case, that those aspects somehow bubble out. Somewhere they come out, no matter how hard people try to hide them. Even someone like Bill Cosby, who was once so deeply loved, couldn't keep the dirt hidden. But it's not the case for Jesus. In Jesus' case, no one ever wrote a tell-all book. No one was ever a whistleblower. There was no big expose in the local Jerusalem Post. Because Jesus was exactly who he was with everyone out there as he was with the people who were closest to him. In fact, in fact, while so many people out there sort of adored him, it was the people who were closest to him, that knew him, that lived with him, that saw him every day, that became most convinced that he was exactly who he said he was. See, there's nothing in his life that matches the pattern of the charlatans or the nut jobs that are out there that make the kind of claims that Jesus made. In fact, Jesus lived an utterly beautiful life. I mean, he combined virtues that no one else combined. Tenderness without weakness. Strength without being harsh. Humility without lacking any confidence whatsoever. Holiness and deep conviction while still remaining totally accessible. Complete authority without being pushy. Incredible courage while still being incredibly sensitive and tender in dealing with others. There's no one like Jesus. I mean, P.T. Forsyth, the, 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 the 20th century uh, theologian, Scottish theologian, uh, he says this about Jesus. If God be not thus, he is less than the God we crave for. In other words, what he's saying is this. What Jesus is like is what God uh, is what God is like. And if God isn't like Jesus, then we should wish that if God was like Jesus, that, that God was like Jesus, because anything less than Jesus is hardly worth being called God. Was Jesus a deceiver or a lunatic? Highly improbable. Impossible, really, when you consider what we know about the, the track record of so many deceivers and lunatics throughout all of history. So, that brings us back to the problem. If Jesus couldn't be called a great man or a great prophet because of what he said about himself, if he doesn't fit the pattern in any way of a lunatic or a, or a charlatan, then what is, the, what is the option? Well, the only other option is this, that he is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. And that's the natural conclusion that some of the people in John's day came to, too. He writes this in John, uh, in verse 41. Others said, he is the Messiah. It's the natural conclusion that they came to. Sir Conan Doyle, who wrote the Sherlock Holmes stories, he has this famous line. He says this, when you have eliminated the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. When you look carefully at the options, when you've eliminated all the other options as unviable and not possible, then the only possible truth, as hard as it is to believe, is that Jesus is exactly 
who he said he was, that he is in fact the Christ, the Messiah. Of course, that, remind, that, that requires you to wrestle with the evidence before you, to be honest with the evidence before you. Because you see, if you don't come to Jesus with an open mind, if you come with a bias, with a preconceived notion, with a preconceived decision, then of course you're not going to find out what, who he really is, what he really is all about. And that's what happens for the, for the Pharisees and the chief priests in this story. In verse 47, when the, when the temple guards don't bring Jesus back, here's what they say to them, to them. He says, you mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted? Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law, there's a curse on them. Basically, they say, they, they, they say, we've already decided we're not accepting who Jesus is. Even though we haven't done the kind of research that we should have, even though we haven't really talked to him to find out what he's really all about, we've simply decided it's not possible. We're not going to follow him. And, and it's fascinating what happens next in verse 50, it says this, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who is one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? Nicodemus was one of the Pharisees and he'd gone to Jesus. He'd actually done his investigating and he argues for what today would be called empiricism, like the scientific method. Like, why wouldn't we follow the evidence? Why wouldn't we actually investigate? Why wouldn't we actually see who Jesus really is. And then we can make a decision. The Pharisees and the chief priests, they're not willing. So they reply with a personal insult and with a regional insult. They say this. Verse 52, they replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. Now, Galilee was considered backwater, Hicksville. No one as sophisticated, as, as urbane, as educated, as as they were, would come from a place like Galilee. And so they put down Nicodemus and they put down Jesus because he came from Galilee. Never mind that they never did enough investigation to find out that Jesus was actually born in Bethlehem. That he was actually of the house and the line of King David. Because they had a bias. They'd already decided. So it didn't matter what they heard after that. Be careful not to do that when it comes to investigating Jesus. You know, I started reading a, a reading, listening to an audiobook all about debt. It was fascinating. It was sort of a, a philosophical and economic look at the history of debt from the beginning of time till today. And, and it started out so interesting. About chapter three, it became apparent that the, the author of that book is a Marxist. He speaks from a Marxist philosophy, which is okay. It's good to hear other points of view and, and understand where other people are coming from. And because he was tracking the history of debt from the very beginning of time, he had to deal with the question of what the Bible talks about, which is the debt that we owe God for our sins. And so he lays out that the Bible says that we have this debt towards God and sins. And then he says this. He says, it's a ridiculous idea. I don't know why anyone would believe it. That's it. That's it. He, he, he writes off all of the Christian faith, all of the history of that in Western civilization, the belief of billions of people on the planet with two sentences. I can't believe anyone would believe it. It's ridiculous. Well, in that moment, in that moment, I kind of ended listening to the book because how can you, how can you, I mean, 
Why wouldn't you spend some time and, and say, this is why I think it's wrong. This is where it's coming from. This is, this is why I don't agree with it. But he didn't. He had such a bias. He simply said, whatever this is, I'm not even dealing with it. You can't do that with Jesus. Not with any kind of integrity in your world. It, it's, like, it's like if there are two flies in the stall with a cow and they decided that they were going to have a debate about what the cow really meant. Now, if there was a cow, if there really was a cow in the stall, then who really cares what the flies think? Because the cow is so much greater than the, than the flies. No one cares what the fly thinks about the cow. What the flies should be worried about is adjusting to the reality of the cow. They should not be talking about what do you think the cow is. This is what I think the cow is. They should be talking about like, you should stay away from the tail. That's not a great place to hang about with the cow. Because what do you think of the cow is a ridiculous discussion if you're the fly. And, and, and the same when you come with all kinds of biases towards, towards Jesus. Some of you say, look, I already know what I believe about sex, about gender. I already know what I believe about my needs and my desires. And if Jesus doesn't fit into it, then it's too bad. I guess he's out. But if Jesus is who he says he is, then who cares what you think? The question isn't, what do you make of Christ? The question is, what does Christ make of you? Because there's an ultimate reality then that you have to ad adapt to. But you'll never be able to do that if you start with a, a bias before you even begin to investigate and understand who Jesus is. Look, if you're exploring faith in Jesus, if your friend or your your, your kids or your parents or whoever it is is saying, like, you should, you, you should come and learn about Jesus. Then you should. You should, out of an entire lifetime, of 60 or 70 or 80 plus years, you should give months or a couple of years to actually genuinely investigate without a bias and say, okay, who is this man? Who is he? And what does it mean for my life? And if you need a place again for that, one of the great places to do that is in the Alpha course that we offer. We're going to offer it this fall. It's a place to come and ask all the questions that you should ask if you're going to give your life to follow after Jesus. The evidence, though, the evidence seems to be very clear that Jesus is ultimately who he claims he is. And if that's the case, that poses a different kind of problem. Maybe a greater problem or a more real problem in some ways. If he isn't just a great teacher, if he isn't just a, a prophet, if he doesn't fit the profile of some sort of deceiver or lunatic, then that means that he is indeed God and that not only does he forgive our sins and not only will he come to, to judge the living and the dead at the end of, of the ages, but also means that he demands our total and complete allegiance. It means that Jesus isn't some sort of, you know, philosophical set of beliefs that you can pick this one and choose that one, but I don't want this one and I'm going to have a little of that. No, 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 you can't do that. Nor is he a genie in a bottle that you, you know, you, you rub and he appears and you say, I want one of my three wishes because I've been so good. No, no, instead, if he is who he claims to be, if Jesus is the Messiah, the, the Christ, the son, of, the son of God, then you have to decide whether you want all of him or none of him. 
You can't kind of do half and half because that's often what happens. People say, okay, I think that he's a Christ, but, but I just want parts of him. It's a little bit like this. If I came to your doorbell, to your, to your house and rang your doorbell, ding dong, and you opened the door and I said, hi, I'm Jonathan Newfeld. Can I come in? If you said, yeah, sure, Jonathan, you come in, Newfeld, you stay out. I'd say, I'm sorry, can you say that again? He said, yeah, yeah, Jonathan, you come in, Newfeld, you stay out. I say, it doesn't work that way. I am Jonathan Newfeld. Either it's Jonathan and Newfeld in, or it's Jonathan and Newfeld out, but it's not like half and half. And yet so often this is the case, we say to Jesus, look, come in, teacher, stay out, king. Come in, helper, stay out, God. Come in, Jesus, stay out, Christ. But you can't do that. It doesn't work that way. This is why Jesus is so divisive. This is why the question of Jesus has been a problem for over 2,000 years. Because, because of who he claims to be. Because he is God, who came to live among us and to, to show us how to be right with God. And so you have to either be all in or all out. There really is no middle ground. So if you come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, the Son of God, it means he demands your full allegiance in every area of your life. And the question today is this, how serious are you about that? How willing are you to submit every area of your life to Jesus? Where is it that you need to say to him today, Jesus, in this area, I'm going to submit it to you. I mean, is it in your career? Is it a relationship that you have? Is it your money, your finances? Is it your sexuality? I mean, where is it that you need to say to Jesus, you're the Christ. Therefore, I submit everything to you. Take it all. And if you're here today and you're exploring faith, and you're like, yeah, I get it. I, okay, I see. Yes, yes, yes. I, I, I understand that Jesus is the Christ. Then today is the day to, to submit your life to him. Right here, right now, you say, okay, Jesus, I, I get it. I want to follow you. And if that's you, you just tell him in your heart. You just tell him quietly. Say, Jesus, I acknowledge that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And I submit my life to you. Come into my life. Show me what to do next. And he will come into your life and he will change your life. Okay, would you, would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. God, we thank you for Jesus. There's no one like him. There's no one who's ever taught like him. There's no one who's ever lived like him. There's no one who has ever changed the course of human history like he has. God, help us as we wrestle with the truth of who Jesus is. Help us as we, as we, as we see who he is, how we react to that. God, help us in the end, to submit our lives fully to him in every area. And God, where we struggle with that, where we find it so difficult, God, grant us grace and power by your spirit to say, okay, I give my life to Jesus. And so God, today we honor you, we bless you, we thank you for Jesus. We pray it in his precious name, amen. Well, thank you for coming and joining us again today. I want to send you with these words from the Gospel of John. John chapter 3 and verse 16 says this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This is who Jesus is. This is who we follow. God bless you. Have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday.